0: We're going to turn our attention uh, this morning um, to the events that happened on Friday in Connecticut. And so I want to just tell you that up front before I kind of get into the message in case you have younger children that you'd prefer to not uh, have be part of this conversation. uh, We're going to look specifically at sort of how do we deal with this and, and where is Jesus in the midst of it. Um, and so now if, if, you have a, if you've got a situation and you want to um, take your kids to Redemption Kids and check them in, now would be a great time to do that. Um, but I, I want to talk about this, and there's a few reasons uh, why we're going to talk about this today and answer this question, where is Jesus when horrible evil strikes? Um, the first, originally I wasn't necessarily thinking that we would do something like this, do a special message on it. Um, Partly because it feels like this stuff is now happening all the time. And I know it's not all the time, but it's, it's more and more and more. And, and it's like, are you going to stop every time a tragedy happens somewhere and, and do a sermon on it? And, and no, we're not. Um, but, but there's something different about this one. At, le- at least for me. There's something different. I saw yesterday that the 20 children who passed were all six or seven years old. And uh, I've got a six-year-old daughter, a first grader. And you don't look at that the same way. I don't know, I must have read eight gajillion people post on Facebook that they're going to hug their kids a little tighter. That's an appropriate response. There's just something about this that, that sort of seems different. And so we had an extra week kind of built into our schedule. And so we, you know, it's funny, even though we you when know, we just did a message on Charlie and kind of set First Peter aside, and some of you are like, man, he doesn't want to finish First Peter. <laughs> no, I I do and, and we will. Um, but we thought that this would be an appropriate time to to talk about this um, because part of my job as a pastor, part of our job as, as elders, is not just to preach truth, but to shepherd and equip you. Right, we're called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And There's not a single person in this room that is not going to tomorrow have more than one conversation about what happened in Connecticut. And, and so we feel a burden to equip you and, uh, and to help you see this as much as possible through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of what's true about the world. We want to give you a biblical worldview on this issue. And so what today is not going to be able to be, just, just time constrains us, it's not going to be a, a, an absolutely exhaustive look at how God's involved in suffering. It's not going to eliminate all the questions that you might have about how could this happen. But I hope it at least gives you some solid ground to, ground to stand on. Some of you need this personally. Some of you are, are yourself questioning, where, where is God in this stuff? And and how could a good God allow this to happen? Is, is God just indifferent to this plight of suffering people? And some of you, this is not a theoretical question. This is a personal question. And, and, and you're on the edge, perhaps, of even am I gonna stick with this God? Can I even trust them? Others of you, it's, it's not theoretical because you're going to talk to people who are going to come at you with all sorts of, of attacks about who God is and what his character is about. And you've already begun to hear these things and, and they're going to just come up more and more. And it's the problem of evil. How could a good God allow so much evil in the world? Right, Because th- there isn't just this uh, crime in Connecticut there's sickness, and there's death, and there's accidents, and there's all kinds of things. How do we think about that? Where do we go to understand that? See, there's lots of these questions, right? How can we trust God? Where is God? And, and I think that for the most part, this is part of the burden of, of saying, let's, let's get a biblical look at this, is I think most of the answers we get, most of the answers we hear are inadequate. So there's things like, and you've started to hear this already, well this is, this is God's judgment on our country because we're sinful, because of abortion, and because of gay marriage, and because of the moral decline, this is God's judgment. Really. To which I hear that, or I read that, and I think, how do you know? Oh wait, wait, wait! You you know the inexhaustible mind of God. Oh, got got it. Never mind. Right? Are you like? Are you kidding? Like, like maybe there's a maybe there's a wake up call involved or something. But 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 you do you know that? Can you declare that definitively? I don't think so. And, and so what people do is they take a moment like this and they use it. To to, to launch their own hobby horse and to to make it an issue about whatever they really care about, which is so insensitive and so narrow and so foolish. And I see these people and I just think, oh, I'm glad not that many people watch CNN, (laughs) right? Because it's like, what are you saying? Love this quote by John Piper. He says, God does 10,000 things in every deed. Perhaps we know a dozen, maybe two, but not enough to judge before he's through. Right? You have all kinds of suffering and difficulty happening. You go, God, why did you allow this? There's thousands of reasons. And you may, in some instances, get just one glimpse and be able to go, oh, that's why that happened. And yet there's many more reasons. So I think that kind of... God's judging our country. I have the answer. This is quick and easy. It's just, it's an insufficient answer. The other answer that you hear a lot, and this is the answer that you hear um, from Christians, is well, people have free will. And God doesn't like this kind of thing. And if God could stop it, He would. Sin is real, and people make evil choices, and, and God just can't do anything about it. That's not what the Bible says. Now, I, I appreciate that when someone gives that answer, they're kind of trying to defend God, trying to say, no, God is, God is good. But what they're saying is, God's good, but he's not powerful. Right, those are the two... The, 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 Those are the two things. God is good, but he's not powerful. He'd love to stop evil things, but he can't. Poor little old God. Just a lackey, can't do much, looks down and says, oh, poor me. To which these people then say, but you should trust God. Okay, like, not only is that unbiblical, it's not helpful Hey, you know the God that just couldn't do diddly squat for you just a minute ago? Trust him now. It's it's not biblical, it's not helpful. Then the third answer that I hear is that God is indifferent to the plight of suffering people. This is more of of a skeptic kind of look at it. This is the idea of, well, God's powerful, but he's not good. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. And therefore, he's not good. So it all raises, this situation in Connecticut, every situation that you'll face of difficulty and suffering raises this question, where is Jesus when horrible evil strikes? And it strikes me that we've been going through First Peter, which for the last three or four weeks has been all about suffering, right to the point where First Peter 4.12 said, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. And then you go, I can't believe it came. And so perhaps today even is an application of what Peter has been telling us. And so I want to tell you today that God is both powerful and good. And that Jesus is involved and aware when horrible evil strikes. Where is he? Well, let, let's, let's pause for a second and say, can we call this what it is? Evil. Like there are tragic elements to it. But, but this, is a, this was a crime. Let's use the Bible's word for this. This is evil. This is sin. This is murder. I know that mental um, illness and uh, mental challenges are also real. I have family, and, uh, and that's a real issue in our family. But that's never an excuse for evil. It's never an excuse for this kind of wickedness. So, where is Jesus when horrible evil strikes? I want to tell you this morning that he's uh, three places. Number one, he's ruling from his throne. Number two, he's looking at his hands. Number three, he's gripping his sword. First, he's ruling from his throne. We'll get to John 11 in a moment, but I want to just sort of take you through a, a biblical discussion of, of this idea that God is sovereign over the evil actions of people. We talked about this this summer. In fact, some of the verses we'll look at are, will be familiar to you if you remember the end of our, of our series studying Genesis and Joseph, that God is sovereign over the evil actions of people. Uh, the, the brothers of Joseph, in that story, they had tried to, originally they were going to kill Joseph, and then they decided they'd sell him into slavery, and uh, God uses all sorts of things to end up saving his brothers and, and raising Joseph to this place of power. And at the end of this story, the brothers come to him and they're afraid that, that, that Joseph's going to get them back for the evil that they did. And here's what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50. "As for you. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. John Piper, commenting on this verse, says, Notice that it does not say that God used their evil for good after they meant it for evil. It says that in the very act of evil, there were two different designs. In the sinful act, they were designing evil, and in the same sinful act, God was designing evil good. So where is Jesus when horrible evil strikes? He is on his throne, ruling on his throne. The scripture tells us that God is sovereign, God is king, God is ruler over all things. That means even sin, even evil. And man, like Joseph's brothers, can legitimately, intently, truly mean something for evil, and God is at the same time meaning it for good, working it for good. This is a doctrine, we've talked about this before, the theological word for it would be concurrence. The idea that that human actions and divine actions work together. So we see a number of places where where people sin, and yet the Scripture declares that God's sovereign over that. And so one would be in Second Chronicles 10. Rehoboam is, is king, and he is foolishly ignoring the advice of the older, wiser men that have gone before him, and he's listening to his foolish peers. And it says this, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. Rehoboam truly, actually sinned by being foolish. And this was a turn of events brought about by God. We also see this in the book of Job. Job is a story of a man, Job, who is righteous and blameless. And uh, even to the point where he's making sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case they sin. And Satan asks if he can sift Job. And God says, you may. Or you get the idea? Satan's on a leash here. Satan doesn't have unlimited power. Satan can do as much as God allows him to do. And in this particular instance, uh, Satan puts it into the hearts of people and they ransack uh, kill much of Job's family, his children. He wishes they would have killed his wife, but they didn't. Because she's nagging him about, just curse God and die. And he won't do that. Instead, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it adds, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So get this, it was Satan that was behind the evil actions of people who murderously stole and pillaged and killed his children. They really did that. And Job says, the Lord has taken away. And the scripture says, in all this, Job didn't, didn't sin. Now, now who did it? The evil people inspired by Satan. And God still rules concurrence you see this with Jonah the prophet thrown into the sea it says in Jonah 1 that they picked up these these sailors with him they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging and then in Jonah chapter 2 Jonah says this in his prayer for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me human action divine action with it. Acts chapter 22, we see this happen in the most horrific act of all of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus himself. Peter declares in Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is sovereign over this. God knew about it. God is meaning good in the midst of it. And yet you crucified and killed them. And do you remember where Jesus said, if you've read the gospel stories, Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. In other words, even in his dying, Jesus was ruling on the throne. Now again, you go, well, what did God mean by this? What did he mean? What was he trying to say? I don't know. 10,000 things, perhaps. Why would God allow this? I don't know. There's mystery here, right? This is neither fatalism, God determines all things and none of your choices matter. It's not that because it's saying you make real choices to do this. This young man in Connecticut made real sinful choices. So it's not fatalism, but it's also not humanism that says well, your choices are all that matters. God is working and ruling over the world in ways that honestly, listen, we can't fully explain. There's some humility here. Deuteronomy 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. There's much of this that were God to explain it, we wouldn't even understand. But just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. So in these moments when we don't know exactly what God is doing, We trust that he's ruling on his throne. So there's the power part. God was not hopeless in this. God could have stopped this to be sure. And he didn't. Which raises the legitimate question, then is he good? How could a good, all-powerful God let this happen? It's the question you have asked or you will ask when you face real suffering. Okay, we got that he's powerful, but is he good? So not only is Jesus ruling from his throne, but number two, Jesus is looking at his hands. See, I think what strikes at the heart of this particular situation is, is the innocence of these kids. All right, I keep, I just Like I said, I keep looking at Abby, six years old. I think about... The Christmas presents that we've bought her. You know, parents had bought their kids some Christmas presents that aren't going to get opened. Think about the Christmas lights we're going to go see. Yesterday was Molly and I's eleventh anniversary, and uh, and so Abby with uh, <laughs> Abby recruited my mom to make us a four course candlelight dinner to celebrate our anniversary. We went over to the Blue Spruce Restaurant. My parents live on Blue Spruce. Went to the Blue Spruce Restaurant, and we were instructed to be fancy, and so we were fancy. And we walked in, and and uh, candlelight and flowers, and right, this is only what happens when you have daughters, right? Like those of you with Eloy, Carrie, you're never gonna happen. Never gonna happen. And I and I'm sitting there last night. And I'm thinking about, am I going to do this message or not? Or, and I'm just looking at, at my girls. And they're not sinless, to be sure. But there's an innocence there. They don't know the depth of their own sin. They don't know the depth of the evil in the world. They, by God's grace, don't even know what happened on Friday. We were able to spare them from the news and the media surrounding that. And I don't think they need to know right. But there's an innocence there. And, and there's something about that that's like, how could a good God let this happen? They were so innocent. And yet Jesus, I think in those moments, is looking at his hands. He's looking at the hands that, though he was completely innocent, had nails driven through them. This is not a hypothetical situation for Jesus. Jesus himself was sinless. Jesus himself was innocent. Jesus himself was undeserving of the death and the flogging and the mockery. Totally undeserving of it. Hebrews chapter Four says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so I just keep picturing Jesus looking at his hands and saying, I know what this feels like. See, it's only in the Christian gospel that we can really make sense of suffering because only in the Christian gospel does God himself actually get involved in it. Right? For for the secular, atheist, humanist, whatever it is, what do you do with suffering? Just the strong eating the weak. World moves on. I mean, if, if you're honest, right? Now, most people can't be that intellectually honest, so they end up offering up these sort of God-like answers that don't in any way fit the worldview that they say they actually believe because they, it just brings out how incompatible it is. But if you're intellectually honest, an atheistic, secular worldview can't be all that disappointed about what happened. Just the strong eating the weak. Eastern religions would say, oh, suffering, it's, it's not really real. It's, it's part of your imagination and, and part of your mind and part of uh, you know, the, the brokenness of how you think. And if you can just bring your, your consciousness back into alignment with suffering's not real, really. I mean, that, that's hard to believe. Even religions like Islam. God is distant from suffering. You talk to a Muslim about, about the crucifixion of the Son of God. They don't have a slot for it. There's no way God would let himself suffer. And in the Christian gospel, God gets involved. God suffers. And not only does this just, it's not like it just happens, this becomes the pinnacle reality of the entire faith. God himself moving into history, living an entire life of suffering. Isaiah 53 said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And then dying in our place. God knows what it is to suffer. And you go, well then how can he let this keep happening? I don't know. But if he knows what it's like to suffer that way. And he still lets it happen. He must have good reason. Jesus was ruling on his throne. Jesus was looking at his hands. Where is Jesus when horrible evil strikes? Finally, he's gripping his sword. He's gripping his sword. I get this image from the book Safely Home. It's my favorite book outside of the Bible. Uh, we have it on the uh, bookshelf out there. You've, you've ever been out there? and go, What is this book doing here? Why? Well, I said, we got to put that on there. Safely Home, it's about the persecuted church in China. And um, there's all these moments. Part of what I love about the book is Randy Alcorn writing it um, just so vividly describes heaven throughout it. And so there's these, there's these moments, these scenes that look into heaven. And, and specifically, the point of the book is that, that there's all this suffering and persecution uh, going on in China. It's a, it's a novel. And... Um, and there's these moments where someone is being persecuted and someone is suffering. And, and the people in heaven are paying attention to that. Right? We think that once you're in heaven, you, you stop thinking about the world. You're just playing golf. Right? Well, listen. If, if God cares about the world, don't you think the people in heaven care about the world? And so there's these moments where this great persecution will happen or or someone is killed for their faith or some sort of major injustice happens and all the people in heaven in these scenes, they turn and they look to the king, Jesus. And they see his eyes burning hot with anger. And he reaches and he grabs the handle of his sword. And he begins to pull it. And the people in heaven and the angels in heaven are looking. Is this the moment? Is this the time? Is Jesus going to go back and make all things right? And his eyes are burning with anger. And he grips his sword and he begins to pull it out. And he puts it back. Says not yet. I love that picture. I love that idea of Jesus gripping his sword. Some of you will go, gosh, well, that doesn't that sounds really violent. Like you've been watching, you know, too much you know, born movies or something. Like that doesn't sound like you know, little Jesus meek and mild to me, you know? And so I want to show you. Uh, We'll go to John 11, finally. This is where we stood and read from. I want to show you this part of Jesus' character, this part of what Jesus is like, this rage, this anger over sin and over death. John chapter 11. If you go back to verse 1 of John chapter 11, we get the context, we get the story of what's going on here. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now stop there for a second. Did you read that? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he got on his donkey and got to Bethany to help him out right away. That's not what it says. It says, so... Having seen, having heard that he was ill, and having loved him, he waited two more days. You go, what? That doesn't, if you love him, go. Well, Jesus has some plans here. So they decide to go, and his disciples try to talk him out of it because they're nervous that he's going to get assaulted and possibly killed on the way. Uh, But they go. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. And you go down to verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus is quite late to this event. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Right. So Martha goes out, goes out like to the edges of the city. She hears Jesus coming. She goes out to see him. And Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you know what she's saying? Jesus, where were you? It's the same question we ask. Where were you? If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? She's going, I know that there's a future hope. I know that heaven's real. I, I know that there's going to be a resurrection. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, you know, up to this point here, just from what we've read, Jesus is up to something, right? I mean, he he said at the very beginning, this isn't going to lead to death. Well, now he's been dead four days. So what is Jesus saying? What, What is Jesus doing here? Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Jesus, where were you? You loved us, I thought. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, unfortunately... Perhaps this is because we often just see Jesus as he's so kind and so sweet and and he would never get angry about anything. Unfortunately, this this word in verse 33, it's also in verse 38, translated deeply moved. Deeply moved is a a pretty sanitized, light way to say this. this. What this word literally means is Jesus was enraged. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, verse 33, he was enraged in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus is enraged. Jesus is indignant. Now it's under control, right? It's in his spirit, right? He doesn't lash out. It's under control, but his inside is burning with anger and rage at death. See, Jesus knows that what causes death is sin, and he hates it. But it's inside him. And he said, verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He wept cried. He sobbed. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But Some keep asking this question. Verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Is he really all that powerful and good? Couldn't he have stopped it? It's the same question. Verse 38. Then Jesus Bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, "Unbind him and let him go. Jesus is enraged at sin. My sermon's supposed to be over now. That stinks. Where's a mute button when you need it. i'm still going. Jesus is enraged at this. And he's going to show the glory of God. But I think he also here, he's showing a preview. He's saying, this is what's to come for those who believe. That's what he says in verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am coming with my nail-pierced hands to end death. I am so sick of this. That I've got to give you a preview of what's to come. Jesus is ruling on his throne. Jesus is looking at his hands. And Jesus is gripping his sword. It says in Revelation 19 that Jesus will come back. That he'll come back on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood. And he'll have a sword. And he'll have a tattoo down his leg. And he is coming to make war. On sin to finish the job he started. Paul Miller here about this verse in John 11, I think this is really interesting. He says it would be sinful for Jesus not to be angry. There are times when you sin if you're not angry. Right? If you see what happened in Connecticut and you don't get angry about that, that's sin. Do you have no compassion? Do you have no heart? Do you not see that you, as an image bearer of God, should see what has happened to these little image bearers of God and be angry about it? That is appropriate. That is right. Doesn't mean that you're without sin. It doesn't mean that you're guiltless. It doesn't mean that you can stand on your own before a perfectly holy God. But when you see this kind of sin and evil and wicked, it should make you angry. It made Jesus angry. And so he grips his sword. But until now, up to this point, he keeps putting it back in the sheath. He hasn't come yet. And every day that he waits demonstrates his patience. Demonstrates that while he hates sin, he is patient. He desires that none would perish but that all would come to a knowledge of him. And he waits. But he won't wait forever. Revelation 21 Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus is coming back to make all things new, to end all sin, not just horrific murder, but being cowardly being sexually impure. All the things that all of us in this room are. And Jesus has come. He's given his hands. He's innocent, but he's taken our suffering to make all things new. And he's coming back. Love this Quote, I I love this quote by Russell Moore. We're going to read here. Let's grieve for the innocent. He wrote this on, I think, Friday or Saturday. Let's grieve for the innocent. Let's demand justice for the guilty. And let's rage against the reptile behind it all. As we do so, let's remember that Bethlehem was an act of war. Let's remember that the one born there is a prince of peace who will crush the skull of the ancient murderer of Eden. Let's pray for the second coming of Mary's son. And as we sing our Christmas carols, let's look into the slitted eyes of Satan as we promise him the threat of his coming crushed skull. The mystery of evil is a declaration of war on the peace of God's creation. The war goes on, but not for long. And sometimes the most warlike thing we can say in an inhuman murderous age like this one is it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Let's pray. (laughs) Amen. Let's pray.